Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. We take up the first three verses today as we work our way, find our way to the end of this incredible book. I know it's been a difficult study, but it's been well worth it, in my experience anyway, to wrestle with this author and his his, uh, finely crafted arguments, ultimately convincing us. Christ is all-sufficient. I was uh, able this week to to share some of these thoughts from what we've been really focusing on these last few chapters of of the gospel freeing us from shame. You know, uh, cultures are usually one or two of three kinds of cultures. There are animistic cultures or fear-based cultures. And then there are guilt-based cultures, and then there are shame-based cultures. And the gospel answers every one of them. There's a fear-based culture, those who live in constant fear of, of uh, demons and, and uh, spirits, which is a, a very reasonable fear that's real. And uh, the gospel leads into such places by saying Christ is, is sovereign. And then there are guilt-based cultures where someone is wrestling constantly with inner guilt over particular sins. And then, and then this is a, a fine distinction, but there are shame-based cultures, which is what ours is, I think, a southern culture. Shame-based culture, which is we really feel, we really fear being shamed by our peers worse than being, built, being guilty before God. And... Uh, the, the, uh, the study of shame in the South in particular is a fascinating one. It's been very helpful for me to, to think about it in applying the gospel. And just this week, I was able to, to deal with, with uh, such things where someone has done something and they, are, they know that they're guilty before God, but their real fear is the shame of those around them. And to be able to say from Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews said, not only does the blood of Jesus cover your guilt before a righteous God, the blood of Jesus frees you from shame. And, um, well, I'm already getting into way down deep into my message today. I got off track. I've I've thrown the slides off already. I better read the text and and uh, just stick with the plan. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There was a family in our church in Augusta who who, uh, did swim lessons in the summer. The whole family did. It It was quite an operation. They taught most of, they taught most of Augusta and the whole CSRA to swim. 
And they're, uh, they started with three-year-olds. And uh, our three-year-old learned to swim there. And uh, she, our now 15-year-old, but the three-year-old at the time, when she was learning to swim, she's the fourth born, which means that we barely remember to take her with us anywhere. But she was into a, a class of all firstborns. And you know, firstborns are special. You know, every firstborn is incredibly special. They're always more brilliant than every other child. You know, they're off the charts. And, you know, you think, I know you think your child is brilliant, but mine really is. It's firstborn. So it was a, it was a class full of firstborn kids. Mothers, you know, hovering around the fence on the outside, peering through the cracks, and we'd drop off Caroline, and they'd have to call us to tell her to come get her. You know, you, you left her at swim lessons, you need to come get her. And so they, you know, here are these kids, they're terrified of the water, the water's cold, they're sputtering and spitting, and they're, they're just dead weight in the water, and they're helping them learn to kick and helping them learn to float, and well, by the end of the week, they at least know how to float on top of the water. And then the big test, the big challenge is to walk them off the end of the diving board and then they're to jump of their own will and then swim over to the ladder. That's the big final test. Well, there's weeping and wailing in this class. They're clinging to the side of the pool. They're scraping their fingernails down the concrete as they're, and they push them out on the, and then they go, one, we're going we're gonna to jump on three. One, two, three, and they push them in. They never get a chance to think about it. They just shove them in. And they sink all the way to the bottom. Their eyes are open. They're, they come up gasping for air. They're wailing, and they finally make it to the, the ladder. And I was there helping that day. And then they say, I did it. I did it. Well, that's who we are. It's the way God deals with us, and then we tend to take the credit. But here, the, the text really presents that dynamic. The, the whole book, especially chapter 11 into chapter 12, presents that dynamic. In fact, we go all the way back to the end of chapter 10, where, where the author says, we are not those who shrink back. It doesn't say don't shrink back. Don't you ever shrink back. It just makes the statement, we do not shrink back, and then goes into chapter 11 and describes throughout redemptive history all of these people of God who did not shrink back. Why? Because of God's faithfulness. God faithfully preserved them they also responded to that grace and endured. There's the dynamic. God pushing us and our running so that it is true. I did it when we reached the end, but I did it because God kept pushing me. That's what I want you to see today. I want you to hang on to Christ even while you are being pushed by Christ. We must finish well because God is the one who faithfully enables us. Because God faithfully enables us, we must finish well. We must finish well because God faithfully enables us. God faithfully enables us, we must finish well. Those two statements can never be separated. So how do you finish well? 
How do you run the race and get across the finish line? How do you finish well? These four things that come out of the text. They're all these either direct commands or, or um, participles that imply commands. Number one, we finish well by laying aside every weight. Let us also lay aside every weight. The first thing I want you to see before we even look at that is notice how he addresses us. Let us. This is a pastor, just as a pastor is talking to you today. A pastor who has to be washed by the same word he's speaking. Let us brothers, you help me too. Let us help one another finish well. Please help me. Pray for me. Chastise me. Encourage me. And I will you. We are in this together. That's what the author of Hebrews, the, divine, the divinely inspired author of Hebrews says, brothers and sisters, let us together lay aside every weight. Why? Because we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, you can't read any text without considering it in context, right? And when you see a word, therefore, you ask, what is the therefore, therefore? It goes back to chapter 11, everything that we've studied in this, this survey of redemptive history. These are the cloud, this is the cloud of witnesses, chapter 11. This is the cloud of witnesses was a saying for those gathered at an athletic event. Here is the arena. And it's, it's, all, it's filled with people like this, that is the finish line, reaching the prize of, of Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant. That arena is filled with these kinds of people whom God in His faithfulness has enabled to finish. Now you say, boy, if I could just be as great as those people in Hebrews chapter 11, what can I remind you of who we studied? Abraham and Moses. These were, these were men who, were, who failed, men who stepped back, men who compromised, men who lied at times. It was God's overarching, overcoming faithfulness that enabled them to reach the end. You qualify. You, you and I are just like these people. And if God can get them across the finish line, He can get us across the finish line. Those are the people waiting for us in the stands. They're saying, come on, you can't give up now. Look at me, Abraham's saying, look at me, look at how many times I lied about my wife. Look at how many times I, 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 I failed to believe. Don't give up. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, not a, not a cloud of great witnesses. We're surrounded by a great, a numerous cloud of witnesses, not a cloud of great people. It's a numerous gathering of those whom God has faithfully gotten over the finish line. That's whom we consider as we lay aside our every weight. And to what were they witnessing? This word that is translated witness is martyr. You know that word, martyrs. But it's come to mean, in our language anyway, someone who has died for his or her faith. But it's not necessarily true in this passage because there are people that he's mentioned who didn't die for their faith. They weren't 
killed. Moses wasn't killed for being a witness. But it is interesting, isn't it, that that word eventually became that word that was always used to describe someone who was giving a bearing witness, giving testimony to something that is true, comes eventually to imply exclusively one who has died for Christ. But in the New Testament mind, there was no distinction. When Christ is your Savior, when you're captivated by His grace, you become a witness for Him, and you know very well it could get you killed. But His faithfulness is so great, has such a great hold on your life, that is a risk you are more than willing to take. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, witnesses to Jesus Christ. Now, you say, well, not all of these, some of these many of these were, came before uh, Christ was even born. This is what the, the church father Ignatius in the first century of the church said about these Old Testament witnesses. The divinely inspired prophets lived according to Jesus Christ. These Old Testament prophets lived according to Jesus Christ. That is precisely why they were persecuted, being inspired by His grace so as to convince the disobedient that there is one God who has manifested Himself through Christ His Son. Now, we've made that point as we've gone along, that, um, that the Old Testament is focused as much on Christ as the New Testament is. It's just more clearly revealed in the New Testament as He is incarnated. But the whole Bible is about Christ. So he says, as you're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses who have always seen that Christ is the one who saves, that Christ is the one who enables, don't give up. Lay aside, now specifically, lay aside every weight and sin. He doesn't say lay aside every weight, which is to say sin, but lay aside every sin and also lay aside every weight. Now, it's clear that if you're going to follow Christ, you're going to finish well, you want to, you want to repent and, and, and feverishly turn from every sin that distracts you. That makes sense to us. We know that. But the author of Hebrews is saying something additionally. You also, when you, when you really understand Christ and how, how beautiful He is and how, 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 how much He gave for you and when, that when you see Him, you will wish that you had given more for Him, when you really understand that, you will lay aside not just every sin, but everything that may be right may be okay for anybody else, but you will lay aside anything that encumbers you in running your race well and finishing well. What may be good for other people may be perfectly legitimate for other people, which may be no problem for other people, but for you it encumbers your race. Lay it aside. It's not just wine, and what are those things we typically run to that, that involve Christian freedom? Wine and movies and whatever, whatever the, the 
Fortune 5 was that I grew up with. Tobacco, movies, mixed bathing. Remember, did you grow up with those things? Always thought that was gross anyway. Who would want to do that? <clears throat> but, uh, but, you know, this could be, this could be things that are perfectly okay for other people. Travel athletics. A vacation home. Keeps you away from church on Sundays. It could be cars or a hobby. Not just to keep you away on Sundays, but things that distract you, that weigh you down and keep you from finishing well. Clothes, career advancement, a certain kind of career. You hear hear what he's saying? It's not just sin, that's obvious. But look, this race, the reward of Christ, when we see him and being captivated by him and seeing his all-worthiness... I'm telling you, he says, you don't want anything to slow you down that would keep you from finishing well, that would keep you from hearing that it is, you have done well, my faithful servant. Second thing we must do is run with endurance. Run with endurance, second part of verse 1. Sin which clings so closely, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I've already started getting into this point, but one thing that, uh, uh, that focuses us in our run is that the run is coming to an end. There is coming an end. There is coming a judgment day, a judgment day that, doesn't, that shouldn't produce fear in one who is hidden in Christ, but a judgment day that should focus us to say, How do I want this period of my life to be reviewed by my beloved Savior in that day? Is what I am going through so all-important that it really is worth compromising here because this is ultimate? Or, no, that can't be true because there's coming a great day when this will be reviewed with everything else in my life And it's going to be put into perspective. And I want to act now the way I want to be reviewed then. I want to make every decision that I make about purchases, about relationships, about about, um, the way I spend my time, the way I handle my character, the way I run my business, the way I treat my children, my grandchildren, the way I behave in private. I want to make every decision about all of those things in the narrative, not in the episode. Not just in this moment, this is what I want and I don't care what else it is. No, I've got to make a decision on this based in the longer narrative that I am someday going to stand before Christ and He's going to comb through my life. And I'm going to, at that day, more than anything else, want to please Him. And I know that He's going to forgive me. I know that He's going to welcome me into heaven. But I don't want this section of my life reviewed with disappointment by Him on that day. Um, One of my 
my favorite books, and I hope it becomes one of yours, is Pilgrim's Progress. It's endured the test of time, written in the 17th century by the Puritan John Bunyan. And uh, he, <clears throat> don't think it's too difficult for you to read because uh, he only had a third grade education. And uh, he wrote it in his simple, simple language. There are newer translations of it uh, out of the Old English but I love this old English. It, 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 it's, it's beautiful the way it captures the emotion with which he's writing. And he's describing, he's describing the Christian life in real, vivid, objective terms. That he leaves a city, a real life city of destruction. And he has a burden on his back that falls off when he sees the cross. And, well, now, the, the section I'm quoting is, is when he comes to what he calls the house beautiful. And it's a picture of the church. He calls the church the house beautiful. And uh, so he's coming to join the church. He's, he's, he's been relieved of his burden of the cross. He's come to Christ. He's, he's been saved. And now he comes to join the church. And he's interviewed by several people. One of them is named Prudence. And Prudence's responsibility is to ask, as we ask when people join the church, is there evidence that you're a Christian? Can we point to evidence that you're a Christian? And the evidence uh, he, that she, in this case, is looking for is not perfection, but are there times when you turn away from your sin for Christ? Are there time, is there any time that the pattern of sin is broken in your life? Not asking for perfection, but is this a general pattern of repentance in your life? I want you to listen to the dialogue. And the, the sin is, he calls, annoyances. Prudence asks him, do you not find sometimes as if those things were vanquished? That those, those annoyances, do you find at times that it's as if there, there's absolutely no struggle at all. You're so focused on Christ that it's no struggle. Those things which at other times are, are a perplexity, do you ever find them vanquished? Yes, but that is seldom. He is a pastor too. But those moments when they are, they are to me golden hours in such, which such things happen to me. Prudence says, can you remember by what means you find your annoyances as times, at times as if they were vanquished? Yes. When I think on what I saw at the cross, that will do it. When I look upon my broidered coat, that's his justification, the righteousness of Christ that robes him. When I look on what Christ has provided me in justification, that will do it. When I look into the role that I carry in my bosom, that's the assurance of faith provided by the Holy Spirit. When I remember the assurance of the Holy Spirit, that will do it. And when my thoughts wax warm about whither I am going, that will do it. When my thoughts wax warm about heaven, that will do it. He says, we lay aside every weight. We also run with endurance the race that is set before us. We look at the goal of heaven. 
we let our thoughts wax warm about it, and that will enable us to finish well. Third, we look to Jesus, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. We look to Jesus. Now, in Greek, uh, instead of our faith, it's just a it's just a, a definite, uh, a definite article. The faith. He is the author and or the founder and perfecter of the faith. Now, when did we learn? When have we learned in Hebrews that the faith that is that salvation in Jesus Christ? When did we learn that was established? In Matthew, in Acts. No, we learned that it was founded at the very beginning of the world. That has always been the faith. There's always been only one way of salvation, through Christ alone. So if Christ is the founder of the faith, it's not that He just founded the faith in the New Testament. He has always been the founder of the faith. He has always been God's plan the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He was the one being pointed to when God said to Adam and Eve, you are going to, the, the serpent is going to war against the seed of the woman, but the seed of the serpent is going to crush, uh, the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. That was already preaching Christ. So all of these saints in, the, in chapter 11 were being led by the founder of the faith, Christ, and the perfecter of the faith, Christ. He is the reason, Christ is the reason, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, Moses, why all of them finished. Because the faith that he founded, he was enabling them to keep throughout the Old Testament. The founder and perfecter of the faith. We can find evidence of that in the New Testament. We've seen it here in chapter 11 when Moses, considering the riches of Christ uh, more important than the riches of Egypt, he's already looking to Christ. It's a very interesting passage. Well, first of all, think about this one. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. In the Old Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, in the Old Testament it says, they all drank one spiritual drink from the rock, and that rock was Christ. The rock which led the people, that fed the people in, in, in Israel, was, it was Christ feeding them. It wasn't that Jesus was hiding in the rock. But every time you see a work of redemption, every time you see a work of supply, supplying grace in the Old Testament, you see directly the work of Christ. There's an interesting passage in Jude, verse 5. You, our translation might say something like this, the Lord who saved His people out of Egypt. But the most reliable manuscripts of the New Testament say, Jesus saved His people out of Egypt. Christ is the one who led His people out of Egypt because He is the founder, perfecter, keeper, enabler of the faith. Look to Jesus. You don't, have the, you don't have the wherewithal to make it. You don't have the, the strength today to fight temptation. You don't think you can make the choice that's going to honor Him. You're tempted to give up and quit. 
Don't look to yourself. Don't try to think your way out of it. Don't try to read even your, don't try to read yourself out of it. Look to Jesus. He is the one who has already run the race and completed it for you. He is the one who will enable you to keep on. Look to Jesus. Finally, he says, the secret to finishing well involves considering him who endured. Verse 3. Uh, who for the, look, looking to Jesus, founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Christ is the example, not just, an ex- not, just, uh, not just the one who enables us, but also the example of what our dependence on God looks like. Christ, against all tangible evidence, in a completely counterintuitive way, trusted His Father all the way to the cross. Now, you know, we stub our toe and we say, how could God let that happen to me? We lose a bid on a house that we love. Oh, why is God, why does God never give me what I want? Christ is hanging on the cross, separated from His Father, enduring the sin of all the world, completely abandoned by His Father. And He says, what? Into your hands I commit my spirit. Absolute faith based on the goodness and faithfulness of God. There is nothing about this situation that makes sense. There is no reason I should trust God's goodness in this situation. They're mocking him from the foot of the cross. Look, he trusts God. He trusts God. Let God save him out of this. He did trust God. Absolutely. And it didn't, it wasn't the wrong thing to do. And if Christ can trust that God is good, that God is saving the law, justifying no matter what, then how much more must we? And back to this shame-based culture, here is an answer. There is the answer that we've received earlier in chapter 10, the answer of the gospel that that the gospel cleanses our consciences. But in our consciences, what do we rest on? When we are afraid of shame, we can look to the cross. Jesus Christ endured the cross. Now, to a Roman, this would mean a lot more than it does to us. There was no more shameful death in the whole Roman Empire than death on a cross. In fact, it was an ancient law that no Roman citizen could be put to death on a cross. Because a Roman citizen, no matter what the Roman citizen did, no matter what he, he could never, he, he, he could never deserve being put on the cross because he was a Roman citizen, no matter what he did. So that left who? 
slaves and Jews like Jesus or foreigners. And when a, when a person, a slave or a foreigner was put on a cross, it was to say, this person not only deserves to die, they should never have existed. And we are crucifying them in this most degrading, most painful, belabored, elongated death over a garbage pile. We are to, to utterly shame them. And Jesus ran to that cross. Jesus fought his way to the cross. Jesus said, I am distressed in my soul until I finish my work on that cross. My joy is to secure their salvation. My joy is to secure their way so that they may be with me. I embrace the cross. I want to embrace the most shameful death possible in their place so that they will know, my children will know, those who believe on me, hide themselves in me, I want them to know that shame is never a valid feeling for them. No one can ever tell you, I'm ashamed of you, because Christ has already pronounced, you are mine, you are justified, and I have removed all shame. I've taken the worst shame that you would never, ever bear it again. Christians, we, must, we have to stand up in this culture, confess our sins readily, bear them to one another, to, to, to dare someone to shame us, to dare the devil to shame us. Martin Luther has a, had a vivid conversation with the devil once. The devil came accusing him of all kinds of things in his past. And Martin Luther said, you've left out a few things. You haven't named them all. It's far worse than you've ever named. And Jesus already knows them. They're all written in his book. And across all of them he's written, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all our sin, we could say, cleanses us from all our shame. Let the devil confess our sins. Let the devil confess the embarrassment, embarrassing things in our family. Let the devil tell the world that we're unemployed. Let the, whatever it is that brings shame in our culture, shout it to the world. Because Christ has taken it all away. I didn't complete that conversation that Prudence and Christian had. Here's, um, here's the way it concludes. Prudence asked, and what is it that makes you so desirous to go to Mount Zion? Why is it that your thoughts wax warm about whither you're going about Mount Zion? Listen to what he says. Why, there I hope to see him alive that did hang dead on the cross. And there I hope to be rid of all those things that to this day are in me an annoyance to me. There, they say, is no death. And there I shall dwell with such company as I like best. For to tell you truth, I 
love him. I love him because I was by him eased of my burden and I am weary of my inward sickness. I am eager to be where I shall die no more and with the company that shall continually cry, holy, holy, holy. Do you love him? That's the, that's the foundational question. Do you love him? How can you not, given his love for you, do you love him? Then finish well that you might see him. Be freed of all your sins. Tell him your gratitude and be with those who likewise say to him all day long, every day, you, Lord Jesus, thank you and holy, holy, holy are you. Finish well, brothers. Finish well by laying aside every burden, running with endurance and considering him who endured even shame for you.